lung, excruciating pain to other people throughout history. Even the word excruciating, which means very agonizing, extreme, almost indescribable pain, comes from the word crucifixion, originally from the Latin, excruciatus, which means to torment or torture. If it weren't for the fact that Jesus went to the cross purchasing forgiveness for us and eventually establishing a church that was founded on the cross, this means of capital punishment might just have been a footnote in history. Just another cruel way that people have invented to hurt other people. But for us, the cross is so much more than that. It's more than an historical means of execution. It's more than a symbol we have on stage like tonight or wear around our necks as jewelry. It's the focus of our faith because it was on the cross that Jesus redeemed us. It was on the cross that Jesus conquered sin and then conquered death in his resurrection. And when Jesus shouted out the words, it is finished for us, that meant our pardon was purchased. The forgiveness of our sins was accomplished. And that's why we can call this day now when we remember the horrible torture of the cross, the agony that our Savior suffered as our substitute on that day. We can call it Good Friday because it was good for us that Jesus suffered and died on that day and saved us from sin and death. It was all part of God's good and perfect plan of redemption set in place before time began. Without it, we can experience nothing good here in the now or in the hereafter. He accomplished the ultimate good for us. That's our salvation on that first Good Friday. But one thing that the Good Friday story in Scripture shows us is that crucifixion wasn't just something that Jesus suffered. We read in all four Gospels that two others were crucified with Jesus that day. Two other people had nails pounded in their wrists and their feet. Two others bled and died on a cross that day, one on each side of Jesus. Now, this is something that happened to an unknown number of others throughout human history. But on this day, this was a fulfillment of Scripture, as we heard last night and even heard today. It was a fulfillment in the means of Jesus' death, and with whom he died. Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed and just hours before he was crucified in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, that he would fulfill the words of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now transgressors were the lawless ones. They were the criminals. In this case, Depending on your translation, depending on which gospel you read, they were called robbers or thieves, criminals, or in the King James, malefactors. They were bad guys, folks. In two of the gospels, the word used for thieves in describing those who were crucified for Jesus, with Jesus, had a stronger meaning that we might normally associate with the word thieves. When we think of thieves, we think of someone who steals, and of course, That's true, but many scholars believe that the two men described as thieves who were on the crosses on either side of Jesus were part of the band of terrorists that were led by Barabbas. Remember him? 
He's the one that the crowd shouted to release instead of Jesus when Pilate was trying to weasel his way out of his part in putting Jesus to death. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. He had committed not just robbery, but insurrection and murder. He may have belonged to one of the gangs that victimized the wealthy upper class of Israel as well as the Romans, and because of that, they may have been somewhat popular with the common people. Let's get those Romans. But that doesn't change who Barabbas was, and he was sentenced to death, along with the two thieves crucified with Jesus. Of course, we know he was released instead of Jesus. He got a reprieve from the death sentence that day. The difference between common thieves and more serious crimes is clearer when you look at the different Greek terms in the original language that were used. Kleptes is the term for burglar, someone who steals by being sneaky. We get our English word kleptomaniac from that. Jesus compares his coming to being like a thief in the night. That's a sneaky thief. Yet the word for these thieves or robbers in two of the Gospels is leistes. It's a different Greek word. It has different implications. This kind of thief is a klepto on steroids or maybe even meth. Much more and much worse than a common sneaky thief. ISIS terrorists come to mind. They combine robbery and pillaging and murder with political revolution. That was Barabbas. And that was likely also the two thieves who died next to Jesus. We don't really know much more about these two thieves, only that they were bad guys, only that they were deserving of the death penalty under Roman law, and likely not just for stealing somebody's stuff. We know they couldn't have been Romans because Romans didn't crucify other Romans. They saved this horrible means of execution as a warning, as a deterrent for their subjects, the people that they ruled. So they might have been Gentiles, but they were most likely Jews. We do know from Scripture that these thieves crucified with Christ joined in with the crowd in mocking Jesus. When Jim read the passage from Mark a few moments ago, we saw that they both did, insulting him even as they also suffered on the cross physically like Jesus suffered. Even as they bled, even as they struggled to breathe through the pain, they were hurling insults. Mark fifteen thirty-two that Jim read tells us that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And in Matthew twenty-seven forty-four, we read the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. But only Luke's gospel tells us something else that I think it's very important for us to note tonight. Let me read the entire account of the crucifixion from Luke's gospel because there's details that aren't in some of the other gospels and I want you to get the full context of what we're looking at tonight. This is from Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 26. As they led him away, talking about Jesus, of course, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? 
two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me, When you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. So, though two Gospels tell us that both criminals on the cross, on either side of Jesus, joined in mocking and insults, we see that at some point during these hours, one of the thieves had a change of heart. As all three men suffered the same physical torture of being nailed to and then hanging on the cross, one of them was saved that day, just hours before he died. One of them repented, and the other apparently died in his sins. This was the Good Friday equivalent of a deathbed conversion, except it occurred on a cross in full view of many witnesses. Have you ever thought what happened in those moments? Why is this important for us to see as we ponder the crucifixion of Jesus? Why is this important enough that Luke included these details for us to remember? While we really don't know much from the biblical account about this man, about his life, his history, his family, we've already assumed some things about him based on the meaning of the original language of Scripture and history. We also know something about him that he himself admitted. He said to the other criminal, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. At the beginning, when he was nailed to the cross, he most likely didn't think that. My brothers and sisters, isn't this a key element of true repentance, owning your sin, admitting that you've done wrong, admitting that you've sinned, and then admitting that you deserve whatever the punishment is for that sin? In this case, that crime, 
The amazing grace of Christ means that though we deserve the punishment for our sin, Jesus has already taken that punishment for us on the cross as we remember tonight. Now this man, this thief who hung on the cross next to his Savior, repented of his sin. It's a remarkable thing to ponder. He repented to Jesus even in the moments that Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for the sins that he was repenting of. Think about that. This thief repented and was able to receive Jesus' forgiveness because at that very moment, Jesus was purchasing that forgiveness for him. So let's look at some of the things that might have led to that repentance. Scripture tells us the words of Jesus and the events of that day. Which of those words spoken impacted the heart of the repentant thief? How about this for starters? Maybe the most important words heard by the repentant thief. Luke 23, 34 tells us that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He wasn't praying that forgiveness for the thieves. He was praying that for the ones who were nailing him to the cross and had nailed him to the cross. So here's this thief hanging there, suffering, dying. And here's this Jesus guy right next to him, suffering the same fate as him, but he's praying to God the Father. My guess is that when the soldiers hammered the nails into their flesh, neither thief was feeling in a particularly forgiving mood. If anything, either the pain was so intense that they couldn't think at all, or the pain being inflicted just aroused, most likely aroused more hate for those Roman soldiers who were nailing them to the cross. Yet Jesus was asking God to forgive them. The Romans hadn't even said, sorry, Jesus, I'm just doing my job. I have to pound these nails into your flesh. They make me do it. It was completely unsolicited forgiveness that Jesus was praying for. Now, if you're that thief on the cross, what kind of impact do you think that eventually had? We don't know at what point in this drama that Jesus prayed that prayer. Was it before both thieves mocked and insulted Jesus, or was it after? But regardless, it had to have had an impact on the repentant thief. It apparently had little or no impact on the unrepentant one, because we know that at some time later he was continuing to mock Jesus, along with many in the crowd of witnesses. But what did the repentant thief think? Could he have begun to wonder about this idea of forgiveness? Here's Jesus asking for forgiveness for those who are inflicting torture on him. The repentant thief might have thought at some point, if Jesus can forgive those who are causing him such pain, maybe, just maybe, he can forgive me too. Maybe, just maybe, all the horrible things that I've done in my life aren't any more horrible than what they're doing to this man. Is that where the process of repentance was planted in this man's heart? Forgiveness. What a concept. Now, the repentant thief not only heard all the words of Jesus, but he no doubt heard all the other things that were said while he hung on the cross. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Jesus, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. So 
What might the repentant thief thought about some of the things that he heard that day? He saved others, he may have thought. He apparently claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ of God, the chosen one. What if he really is? There's something very different about this Jesus. There's something very different about the way he's dealing with his death. There's something very different about what he's saying. He's praying for forgiveness for the undeserving, the undeserving like me. What if he is the Messiah? What if he is the chosen one? What if he really did save others? What if he can save me? Let's not forget about what the repentant thief saw too what he witnessed with his own eyes. It's likely he saw the inscription on the cross of Jesus, King of the Jews. What thoughts might seeing that sign have prompted in this man's mind? The thief was probably not a very big fan of the Jewish hierarchy, any more than he was a fan of the Romans who were putting him to death. But what if Jesus really was the king? The thief had already seen that there was something very different about this Jesus guy. If he was the king, he had to be a different kind of king. And if he was on a cross suffering like me, perhaps his kingdom wasn't just on earth. We see in this count a reflection of the impact of the gospel on the world. We see that the gospel draws some and actually seems to repel others. The unrepentant thief wanted nothing to do with Jesus' forgiveness, his apparent weakness. It seemed to repel him. He mocked Jesus in saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He was asking, most likely in a very derisive tone, for Jesus to get him out of the awful circumstances he was in. He wasn't asking to be saved from his sins. He only wanted to be delivered from the pain of the cross. On the other hand, the repentant thief saw in Jesus' offer of forgiveness and his apparent weakness a different kind of strength. It drew him. It drew him. We also see that from beginning to end, we see in this story the gospel is God's work and salvation is of him and totally of him and totally of him alone. Jesus himself said that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. That day... God the Father, no doubt through the activity of the Holy Spirit in this repentant thief's heart, likely using some of these things that we've just noticed that he saw, that he heard, drew this man to Jesus. That we know without any speculation whatsoever. Because in Luke's account, we read this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We see a representation here of these different responses to the gospel. This is just as true today as it was on that day. We are all malefactors. We are all evildoers. We're all guilty before God apart from Christ. But the gospel, the good news, has different outcomes with different people. We read in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. These biblical truths were very much at work that day as they are today. And this is important for us to remember. To some, the gospel really is good news. To some, the gospel is foolishness or folly. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So on that first Good Friday, to the unrepentant thief, it was foolishness. How could Jesus really be the Son of God if he allows himself to be tortured to death like this? If he's really the king, why is he dying just like me? But to the repentant thief, Jesus' words to him were the fragrance of life and the power and the wisdom of God. This story also shows us that trouble alone will not lead us to God. Often we hear stories and testimonies from believers that we have known that some trouble, some suffering becomes a wake-up call for the sinner. They realize they can't go on like this and they turn to Christ. Not so with the unrepentant thief. Matthew Henry wrote, No troubles will of themselves work a change in a wicked heart, but sometimes they irritate the corruption which one would think they should mortify. This was clearly the case with the other man who hung on a cross next to Jesus. Not only did he not repent, but he mocked and insulted the only one who could save him. However, the repentant thief, no doubt inspired by the Holy Spirit's prompting, came to some very important realizations. He realized he was a sinner. He realized that his sins earned him the penalty that he was receiving at that very moment. And there was no hope in saving himself. This whole story of the repentant thief is a lesson in salvation by grace through faith. After all, the repentant thief never had a chance to do anything good to earn his way to heaven. He never had a chance to share the gospel with anyone. He never had a chance to practice the spiritual disciplines, to read his Bible, to pray, to grow closer to God. He never had an opportunity to grow into the image and likeness of Christ, like all of us here in this room do. He never had a chance to do any good works at all. But he also realized that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world, so he humbly asked for nothing except that Jesus remember him. 
And despite his never doing a good work, Jesus promised him that he would be with him in paradise. Jesus promised him what all of us who are in Christ can look forward to with eagerness. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that is far better. You probably wouldn't have had to convince the repentant thief that to be present with the Lord in paradise would be far better than what he was experiencing. At the moment Jesus made this promise to him, the thief still had a few hours left to bleed and experience the excruciating pain of the cross. That would end shortly after the soldiers smashed his legs so he could no longer push himself up to breathe on the cross, and he died. Jesus could promise the thief paradise because Jesus was earning it for him on the cross. He was in the midst of, at that very moment, paying the price for that thief's sins and for the sins of you and me. You know, one of the Gospels tells us that what Jesus cried out was, it is finished. The penalty had been paid, guaranteeing Jesus' promise to the thief, to you and to me. I have to wonder if in that moment was there at least a little bit of joy for the thief in the midst of his suffering. Could the Holy Spirit have revealed to him in some way what that meant? It is finished. We don't know. We can only speculate. But there are some things from this story that we do know without any speculation. And first thing is that it's never too late to repent. Now, this was an extraordinary event, and we have to be careful not to use this as an example of how we can come to Christ at the last minute because the truth is none of us knows the day or the hour of our death. But it's never too late to turn to Christ because our salvation depends not on what we do, but on what he did. Still, let's remember what Matthew Henry wrote, though it is certain that true repentance is never too late, it is just as certain that late repentance is seldom true. None can be sure that they shall have time to repent at death, but every man may be sure that he cannot have the advantages that this penitent thief had, whose case was altogether extraordinary. Another thing that we know for sure from this story is that repentance requires us to own our sin. Jesus didn't have in that moment what we have sometimes the opportunity to witness to determine whether or not repentance is real. How do we know if repentance is real? We can witness a changed life over days, weeks, months, and even years. That's the fruit of repentance. The thief never had that opportunity to reveal that, to change from a malefactor into a doer of the word. But he didn't shirk his responsibility for his sin. He recognized that he was getting the just penalty for his crimes, his sin. He didn't reflect, he didn't deflect responsibility. He didn't blame his childhood upbringing. He didn't say, I never had a chance, or you should have known my mom and dad, or I have an addiction. He didn't blame an insecurity or an illness or some other deficit. He owned his sin. I deserve what's happening to me. And in that, Jesus saw true repentance. True repentance accepts the justice of God. Related to the never-too-late idea we talked about a moment ago, there's always hope and there's always prayer. It's likely that this thief had never prayed, or at least probably not in years. But while there is life, there is hope. And while there is hope, there is room for prayer. The thief's prayer was this, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
It was a prayer of trust. It was a prayer of faith. It was trust that Jesus even has a kingdom. It was trust that he would indeed remember him. It was trust that his kingdom must be something special, something beyond the cross, or why would he even ask to be remembered there? It's also a reminder of what Scripture tells us about Jesus. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is remembering us in his kingdom right now, my brothers and sisters, because as this verse tells us, he always lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus remembered the thief on the cross. He made intercession for him. Jesus went first to paradise, and the thief followed him just a few hours later. We also read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now we know what a mediator is. He's someone who stands between two parties on behalf of one of them, remembering us before God the Father. Jesus is our mediator, and he was that day for the repentant thief. This story reveals another confirmation. It's one of many places in Scripture we find this truth that when we die, we are immediately with Christ. Jesus said to the thief, today, didn't say down the road, didn't say when I come back, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. We see this affirmed again in other places in the word, but here we see it clearly too. You know, this should give us great encouragement for ourselves as well as for our loved ones in Christ who have gone before us. While after death, We do await our resurrected and perfect bodies. We do await the new heavens and the new earth. We don't have to wait to be with Jesus. Ultimately, this story, like all stories in Scripture, is not designed to make any kind of hero out of the thief. It's here in the Word of God to remind us of these great truths, remembering them to glorify the one who went to the cross as our substitute. The thief never had time to learn all the implications of what happened that day as we're rehearsing here tonight. In fact, he probably understands it better now than we do in the presence of the one who saved him. But if that repentant thief could speak to us this evening, he'd no doubt point to that cross. And he would say that though both Jesus and I hung on the cross at the same time together next to each other, My cross was the instrument of punishment for the earthly crimes that I committed. But Jesus' cross was way different, even though it might have looked very much the same. Jesus' cross was the instrument of my salvation and yours as I hung there getting the earthly punishment that I so richly deserved. Jesus hung there next to me, absorbing the wrath of God against my sin and yours taking the eternal punishment I deserved so that on that very day I could be in paradise with him. All glory be to the King of kings and the Lord of lords.